Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. We're talking humility this morning. Humility and truth, as Eloise mentioned earlier. And it's an interesting to think about how those two things are related. And I was thinking about what is it, what's the recent exercise in humility that I've experienced? Uh, and without, you know, oftentimes when we're humbled, it's quite humiliating and, and um, all those sorts of things. So I thought, what's one that I, is not too much of an overshare? Um, it keeps, you know. Uh, and I think the one that, that jumped out to me the most was uh, traveling down to the southeast. We, we had a holiday down to Rogue as you already know, and one of the most humbling things about traveling to the southeast is the weather. Like, you don't get a choice in terms of you get cold or you get colder. It seems to be the two choices that you get when you travel down there, and it's either wet or it's super wet in terms of the wet. So, so that the weekend down there where it, one would have hoped that, you know, my pastor, I've scheduled a holiday, God, can you hook me up with some good weather, I pray plenty, can you just help us out? No, absolutely not. It was super wet. And it was a, it's a humbling experience, finally going on holidays and just having to be stuck in the cabin a little bit. And, and, um, but ultimately, we did end up getting out and about. We had all the girls in their, in their gumboots and jumping up and down in muddy puddles and doing all the things that you've got to do when you don't have a choice in that way. Um, but it really was a great time away, but it was an exercise a little bit in humility, because you re- we realize, regardless of our schedule, regardless of anything else, we're not in control, not of, not of the weather, and despite our plans, the weather's going to do what the weather wants to do. And in some ways, that's a bit of a snapshot of where it is that we want to go today, around this, this idea of humility and truth. But before I jump into the Word and and offer a couple of caveats, why don't we pray together? Loving and gracious God, I thank You. I thank You for Your Word and for the way that it speaks to us. I pray that You would open our hearts and minds to receive all that You have for us today. I pray that the truth that we might hear would set us free. I pray that the challenges that we hear, Lord, would You give us the grace to receive them in the way that You intend. Would your spirit speak deeply into our hearts? Loving God, I pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, for our our passage of teaching for this morning, I really wanted to jump right into it, just because it's a whole chapter of the book of Amos. And if you're not familiar with where Amos is, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, it's part of the original Jewish scriptures um, and the prophets. And Amos was a, a minor prophet that existed around 750 
years before the life of Jesus. That gives you some context as to when Amos lived. And oftentimes when we explore texts like this one, which is, it's a prophetic text, so Amos was a prophet, it's a, it's, and the book of Amos is, is, I think it's nine chapters, basically of prophetic word that speaks an awful lot of judgment. And for many of us, when we look at a judgment text like this one, we don't know what to do with it. And there's a tension that comes up because we go, well, hang on a second. I don't know that I'm so comfortable with a text that speaks so plainly of how badly the people have gone stuffed up and how significant the consequences are going to be. Because we go, well, hang on, does that apply to me when I stuff up? And so... I want to acknowledge right at the beginning the tension that we experience when we read a prophetic text like this one that speaks so plainly of how upset God is with His people and the consequences of that. But I want to acknowledge that tension right at the top, but also give you a little bit of the taste of right from, the, from the, where we land for today is that the judgment is not the end of the story. So you hold that for me, judgment, you say, can you say that with me? Judgment is not the end of the story. Judgment is not the end of the story. And what got me thinking about why it is that these, um, that these judgment texts are so uncomfortable, uncomfortable for us in our 21st century world. Why is it that we struggle so much with a divine truth like this? And I think there's two reasons that we struggle with it. The first one is that if there's judgment, it means that there's rules. And if there's rules, it means that someone set the rules. And rarely is it ever us that sets those rules. We've covered that, you know, over the, I've preached about that before. Rarely is it ever us that sets those rules. And so the implication is that there must be someone else or something else, somewhere else, that's telling us what we can and can't do. So if there's judgment, there's got to be rules. If there's rules and we didn't set them, someone else did. And if we have to abide by them, it means there's something out there that tells, has the authority to tell us what we can and can't do. And in our 21st century life, we don't like that one too much. Why? Because I am the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my ship. I'm the one who gets to decide what's right and wrong for me. I'm the one that gets to determine what's true. I'm the one that gets to define my reality. That's the 21st century narrative, is it not? Absolutely it is. You try and argue facts and truth on a place like Facebook, you don't get very far, because sooner or later you run into the, what would you call it, a blockade that is someone else's truth as opposed to yours. And so when we talk judgment, we go, that's uncomfortable. Why? Because someone else is in charge, not me. And the second thing that, that we strike up against and that makes it uncomfortable for us around judgment is that judgment has consequences. Now, we're familiar with this in terms of our, our justice system and things like that. When a judgment is handed down, there's always consequences connected to that judgment in some way. If there's been a, a, a crime or a some, or an indiscretion, or something has happened, there's always, a, there's always consequences attached to that judgment. And the thing that we rub up against when it comes to this is that God is meant to give us a good life, isn't He? I use 
I use a masculine pronoun because it's just easier, that's what Jesus used. Isn't God meant to just give us a good life? Because our God doesn't want to make us uncomfortable, does He? I don't know about you, but so often in our life, that's the default that we go to, that if God's a loving God, and if God is, is, is out there and God loves me, then it's God's job to give me a happy and comfortable life. And so when we read something that says there's judgment and con- or consequences attached to judgment, we go, that can't be a good and loving God because God's meant to make me happy. And we spend, and at the, I think the 21st century world now is an exercise in avoiding discomfort. Wouldn't you say? Every innovation that we have ever come up with, the ones that came to mind for me, were about alleviating discomfort in some form. The car was created so that we didn't have to ride a horse. If you've ever ridden a horse for more than 10 minutes, you might understand discomfort. <laughs> I never have, so, but I'm told that's the case. That's, that's where the Western movie swagger came from when they come in off their horse. Isn't that right? Something like that, anyway. So, we, but it's, the innovations of our, of our 21st century world are about avoiding discomfort. And so, when we think about judgment, we struggle with the idea that a God of love who loves us and is meant to be for us would ever consider making us uncomfortable. But I've got to tell you, that God... The God of your happiness, above all else, does not exist. Never has and never will. And if that God does exist, it's not big enough to help you with your life. That God will never help you the way that you want them to. Because it's a God that you created. So with those couple of caveats out the way, acknowledging the tensions in the room, Let's jump into this text from Amos. And now, I mentioned that it was recorded in the mid-700s before Jesus. And this prophetic text, we, we discover the place as we read through it, but it's happening in, in Samaria, really, or northern Israel, uh, which is Samaria in the New Testament. And so, it's northern Israel. And so, in time in, in Israel's history, the people of God, that they are divided into two distinct city-states or states. We've got Israel, northern Israel at the top, and Judah in the south. And they're a bit in, in, in tension. They've got kings that, that are across each of them. They're just not getting on particularly well. And that's sort of the story of the Jewish nation from, um, from this point onwards. And I was thinking, is there anything else we need to know to make sense of this? Well, we know that not long after this, judgment is declared, maybe I think it's about 30 to 40 years after this judgment is declared, the north, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is conquered by Assyria and taken into exile. That's what we need to know happens next, after everything that we hear in this moment. So, you ready to jump into the text? Let's do it. I'm going to read the whole thing. No, I'm not. I'm going to read a piece of it, and then we'll, then we'll uh, talk a bit about it. So, starting in uh, Amos, if you've got a Bible with you and you want to follow along, Amos chapter 7, or it's on the screen. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. 
when they had stripped the land clean. I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive them. How can Jacob, so that's Israel, how can they survive? They are so small. And so the Lord relented. This will not happen, said the Lord. And then this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, verse 4. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. And it dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob, how can Israel survive? They are so, so small. And so the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This passage begins with two visions, two intercessions, one phone call, and two acts of mercy. Two visions of destruction, two intercessions, and two acts of mercy. And now I could go into it right through the, the, the vision and the, the, um, the historical context of these things. But basically, the first vision is a swarm of locusts. And right through the Old Testament, locusts was a divine intervention. When locusts came through, everything died. They ate everything. And you were, as a nation, done. Because you didn't have anything. You had no food left, nothing the ground was desolate. So when a swarm of locusts came through, you were done. And so we see a prophetic word over the nation of Israel saying, the locusts are coming, it's a divine plague, and you're going to be done. And Amos appeals to God and says, please don't. And God goes, well, okay. And then we see a second plague come through, which was, well, it's not a plague, it's a um, it's destruction by fire, and it consumes the deep. Now, in the ancient world, they believed that there was the, they believed that everything under the earth was water, in some form. And so, for this fire to come in such a significant way that it consumed all moisture everywhere, every well dried up, all the cisterns, everything was gone. This was a divine act. Nothing in creation can consume with that much fire, in that sort of way, in the ancient world, in that place. This had to be God. And it consumed all the water. And if that happened, you were done. But again, Amos appeals to them and God relents. Now, that was often a job of prophets in the, New, in the Old Testament, was to appeal or to intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel every single time they screwed up. But the question's got to become, why the judgment? We have to ask, why is it that Israel found themselves in this place? And right through the rest of, of the, in Amos up to this point, we discover what it was that Israel was doing wrong. In a word, they had forgotten the Lord their God. Under King Jeroboam II, they had forgotten the Lord their God. And what that forgetting of God looked like, as far as the text tells us, is it looks like oppression of the poor. It looks like a marginalized society. It looks like a place where they are receiving the gifts to the temple and then they're using those gifts for parties. It's where they're taking advantage of people. Archaeologists have, um, have excavated areas of, of this, this place in, in the ancient world and they discovered 
that 200 years prior to this, this is really interesting to me, 200 years prior to this, all the houses that they have found are around the same size. And then at around 700 or just before it, 700 as far as they can date it, B.C. No, sorry, 800 B.C. The numbers go backwards, don't they? Um, Around 800 B.C., society starts to change. And they've discovered poor quarters and rich quarters. Poor quarters where the houses are a fraction of the size that they were, and then rich quarters of the cities where, where the houses are huge in comparison. And what does that tell us? That tells us that society had become corrupt in such a way that the rich were richest and the poor were poorest. And the, the judgment that Amos receives for the nation is, I'm the Lord your God and that is not okay because that is not what I taught you to be like. You are called to be the first people on earth that actually care about the poor and the marginalized because I do, says God, and you're not, and that's not okay. That's not okay. And so the first challenge that I think came out of this text for me, and it's perhaps a word for our time, quite simply is, if if God cared that much about the poor in this moment, to send fire and judgment upon His people, We know the heart of God doesn't change, so what is it that God would want to say to us as a town, as a community, at this time? This is, um, I think it's okay. If it bugs me again, I'll swap to another mic. Thanks, Mel. Where is it that we as a church, where is it that we as a culture might be overlooking the oppressed, overlooking the poor, and frankly missing the heart of God? Because I I wonder sometimes if the prophetic words into our culture, into our nation, into our town, sometimes get overlooked a little. But it's so clear the heart of God in this. But what I find really interesting about these two visions is how does Amos intercede for the for Israel? How does how does he intercede? He says, Sovereign Lord, forgive them. How can Jacob or Israel survive. He is, they are, so small. That's all he says. That's all he says. So, he doesn't appeal to any sort of goodness. He doesn't appeal to any sort of righteousness on, that Israel has. Instead, all he's got to appeal to is the character of God, the mercy of God. Amos acknowledges that there is nothing worthy within Israel to save them from this judgment. But instead, all he's got is to appeal to the goodness and mercy of God to save them. And twice that is enough. What does that tell us about the goodness of God? The mercy of God. He appeals basically to Abraham's vision, Moses' vision of the goodness of God. As Yahweh, loving kindness, slow to anger, abounding in compassion and love. And so, whilst we get in this too, a clear picture of God's desire for justice and the judgment that's ultimately going to come and the consequences, 
What I think we need to make sure we keep in view here is the loving, compassionate kindness of God. That's central to all of this. Before we ever get to the judgment, we need to see the compassion and the mercy that is at the heart of the living God. I think that's why these things were first. These two visions were first before we ever get to the rest of it, is to, so that we can keep in view that we believe and we, lo- and we know a, a God that is loving, compassionate, and kind. But the passage continues on to a third vision. And it says, this is what he showed me, says Amos. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked, what do you see, Amos? And Amos replied, I see a plumb line. If you're not familiar with what a plumb line is, it's a string with a weight on it that tells true straight up and down. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam the king. So, in this second, or in this third vision, we get the vision of judgment. God sets among His people something that is true, right, and correct, and against it they cannot stand. They, it, that plumb line shows just how far off track they are. But what's really interesting, and I'm not going to give you the whole theological background, but the word plumb line does not exist in this text in Hebrew. The word plumb line does not exist in Hebrew. The word plumb line was placed into our English version of the text in, the, in medieval times. And so they have no idea what it is that that word actually means. It's, it's the Hebrew word anach. You can say that with me, anach. No idea what it means. It means some sort of metal, perhaps, more likely tin than anything else. But it's also, scholars think more likely now, that it's actually a play on words. And this word, anach, most likely is actually referring to Amos himself. The God in this moment in time places Amos, a prophet, in the name of God, into his people, Israel. Places them right there to declare the truth about what is right, what is real, and what is happening. And against that line, and against that truth, Israel cannot stand. That makes an awful lot of sense to me. That in this moment, the plumb line is Amos, is the truth that he is declaring to the people of Israel that you're off track and this is not okay. That you have had so many chances, but now God is coming to bring the judgment He promised because you wouldn't keep your end of the deal. And notice the language of ownership. When, when God declares in verse 8, He says, then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people, 
This is ownership. This is my people. This is, you will be, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm allowed to set the rules. I'm the one with the authority. You are my people and you haven't done what I asked you to do based on how good I have been. So I will spare them no longer. And we ought not miss the judgment or the consequence. I will destroy the high places of, of Isaac and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined and my sword will come against the house of Jeroboam. What does that mean? Well, the north, northern Israel had decided that they would become a national religion. And in that, they created new places of worship. They created new sanctuaries. And they created a new sect of priesthood. And the result was a system of control governed by the king. And the king got to worship in certain places and no one else did. And so this judgment says, I am going to bring low all the things that you have created that have taken you away from me. I'm going to bring low all of the things that you have constructed under human ideas and human thoughts, human agenda and human selfishness. I'm going to bring those things to the ground. And above all will be the king, the one who decided he was going to be my representative in the world and has failed to do so. That's God's judgment against the people of Israel. In a word, God is moving against a worldview that says, I've got this. I don't need you, God. I'm, I've got all of this under control. I've got everything that I need. I wonder if you heard that lately. I've got this. I don't need you. Everything's under control. I wonder if that's the narrative of our, of our society now. And in some cases, one would argue that is the narrative of our churches sometimes. That we've got this. Our systems are good enough. Let us take it from here, God. I wonder if there's a prophetic word for this time that we ought continue to seek God and, and not step away from and not dishonor, not necessarily tear down, but acknowledge the limited nature of the systems that we have, of the churches, the places that we build, the stuff that we have. Acknowledge its limitedness when compared to the magnitude of an everlasting God whose idea it was to save us and put us here in the first place. I wonder if that's a word. But the passage continues again, continuing with verse 10. It says, When Amaziah the priest of Bethel he was a designated priest in this place, appointed by Jeroboam the king. Sent a message to Jeroboam the king of Israel. Amos, he's being naughty. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the heart, very heart of Israel. The land can't bear all of his words. The people aren't going to take this. This is, not, this is going to bring political unrest. This is going to destabilize your monarchy. For this is what Amos is saying, Jeroboam's going to die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Now, that's not what Amos said, but that's what 
Amaziah, the king, the guy that's in control, the guy who's got the most to lose in this moment, that's how he summarizes the message. Tales to the king, because he's worried he's going to lose his job. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out of here, you seer, you prophet. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. So take your prophecies and go to Judah. Let them have your prophecies. We don't want them. We don't particularly like them. So take them somewhere else. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary. This is where the king comes to worship. And this is the temple of the kingdom up here. You're not welcome. We don't like what you've got to say. Jog on. And Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. So I'm not even a professional prophet, says Amos. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, so this is, now this is God speaking specifically through Amos to Amaziah the priest. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Israel, of, of Isaac. You tell me that, this is what I say to you, says God. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourself will die in a pagan country and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. That's hard to hear. That's exactly what happens. How interesting. What do we do with that? What I find really interesting is the message that Amos brings is rejected because he was not a part of the system. He wasn't a designated prophet, so he wasn't listened to. But what comes through so clearly is what became ultimately their undoing as the nation of Israel, what ultimately led to the judgment, what led to the consequences, what led to their exile, was the idea that they had everything under control. It was ultimately their stubbornness and their pride that was their undoing. It was their lack of humility before God that cost them everything. Cost them everything. And I was taught once, I think it was one of, I reckon it was one of my mentors early on in my ministry life. He taught me that armed with enough humility, we can learn from anyone. I'm sure I've taught that here before, that armed with enough humility, we can learn from anyone. And I believe that that is exactly what Amaziah needed to hear in this moment. You need to take a dose of humility and listen to this prophet who didn't, didn't go to seminary, didn't go to college, but instead has a divine word from the Lord that you need to hear. And if you had a shred of humility, you would listen to the truth. And that truth would have set you free. But he didn't. And the rest, as they say, is history. And their systems as an Israelite nation were destroyed. 
just as God said they would. But one thing we need to note and remember and recognize is whilst the systems that led to their to the whilst the systems that led to their the oppression of the poor and the systems that led to their their um, corruption were destroyed and the people taken to exile and a great deal of loss related to that. That wasn't the end of Israel's story, was it? The people were taken into exile, but a, a faithful remnant remained. And that remnant of people returned back to eventually rebuild things again. Friends, for, for the Israelite nation, their self-reliance was their undoing. And I do wonder if for us in our journey of faith, the same is true for us. That our self-reliance ultimately becomes our undoing. Because if we jump forward to the, to the gospel that Jesus died for, to the good news that we receive through what Jesus did on the cross, we discover that it's when we accept that we are not in control, when we accept that there's nothing that we could do to earn our way out of judgment. It's when we accept that truth that we are set free by faith. Jesus came and died on a cross so that we could be set free. But that freedom requires faith. A faith that we are not the ones in control. That we do not have enough to save ourselves. But instead, Jesus was enough to save us. And that comes right back to Amos' first intercession. The Israelite nation had nothing. There was nothing he could offer to God to say, here, they've, at least they've been doing this right. Please don't judge them. Instead, all he's got is to appeal on the loving mercy of God. And the truth for you and I is that there's no prayers, there's no giving, there's no Sunday church attendance that we can offer that will be enough for God to say, well, okay, that's a C plus average, you can come in. There's nothing that like Amos before God, we before Jesus have nothing that we can offer to earn our salvation. The only thing that we can appeal to is the loving mercy of a heavenly Father that says, you know what? Because of what my son chose to do, to die on a cross for your sins, you can come in. You can receive all that I have for you. You can take what he earned I give freely to you, not because of your goodness, but because of my grace and my mercy. That's the truth. That's the gospel. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Because there's always got to be something that we can apply into our life. And I think where this lands for us, this is quite simply the question of where have you been putting hope in your own righteousness, in your ability to earn and do good enough stuff 
to be right with God. Because it's amazing how easy that creeps in. I'm guilty of that every single day, where I think of the good stuff I've done in the day, and somehow I get to the end and go, I reckon I was good enough today. And God once again reminds me, Josh, you missed the point again. That's a journey we always have to remember. But I think the other part of this is, where is there a prophetic voice that you need to let into your life? And the way that this, sort of, this came to me was, who, who have you got around you that will tell you the truth? Amaziah, in that moment, had someone come before him that was willing to tell him the truth, and he chose not to listen. But so often in our life, we don't have people around us that are willing to tell us the truth. So my question to you this morning, as you journey in your personal faith, is who do you have around you that will tell you the truth regardless of what you think? We all need one, at least one prophetic voice in our life that will tell us how things are. And I've got to tell you, if you don't have that person, then it's amazing how quickly we can get off track and find ourselves on the wrong end of all sorts of things. I've got my, my five-year review as your pastor. I used to minister coming up uh, later this month, I think it's later this month, or certainly before the end of the year. And they ask me, what is it that you want us to review? And I thought about it, and I thought, well, everything's going pretty well, I reckon. So I think, my first thought was, I think we're good. You don't need to review anything. You guys like me, I like me, I like you. I think we'll roll, we'll roll on, is that okay? Is that enough? But then it was like... A, Something just, as I was about to say that, something else came to my mind. And it was, Josh, what aren't you hearing? Where it's, what's the truth that you're missing? Because that's what you need to know. That's what you need to know. If everyone around us is telling us what we want to hear and no one's got the courage to be honest, I'm not saying that's, that's the way things are, But who is it that's telling us the truth? Because sometimes that's the voice among everyone else. That's the one that's the voice of God for our life. So that's our faith journey. But I think if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, if you're joining us online or you're present and and you don't know what to make of all of this. And God of judgment and, 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 and all of that. And I've mentioned what Jesus did. But I, I do believe that the truth, the, the core, the heart of this is significant. That whilst the Israelite nation went into exile as a result of the judgment of God, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus went into exile on the cross so that you and I don't have to. And I think that's... If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear that this morning. That the gift of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, was that He would go into exile on a cross so that we don't have to. And for that, we say thanks be to God. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. It is all about the loving grace of God, our Heavenly Father. So where do you need to hear some truth in your life? Where are you struggling 
to have enough humility to listen and realize that you don't have all the answers. May God's Word speak into your heart and into your life today. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.